This message by Craig Cabanis, titled Knowing God with the Psalmist, is made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. It was recorded during the first general session at our Worship God 2008 conference. Craig serves as senior pastor at Grace Church in Frisco, Texas. Well, thank you. If you would, open your Bibles to Psalm 33. Psalm 33. I, um, I love to come to this conference. Uh, it's a thrill to be invited to open God's Word with folks. It's, it's an even greater thrill to be invited back to do the same. So each time I've come to this conference, it's just been an absolute uh, thrill for me. And uh, it's a thrill for a number of reasons. One, it's several days set apart just to uh, sing um, like no other singing I experienced throughout the year with a room full of uh, singers and musicians and a few people like myself sprinkled in uh, that have no game but just benefit off yours and feel like we have game just being in your midst. So it is just a thrill to be able to have a concentrated time worshiping the Lord. And it's also a thrill for me to come each year uh, that I've been invited and just add my voice to the other voices uh, representing pastors and uh, saying thank you for all that you do to um, honor the Lord through your service in your local church. The difference that you make um, is really profound. And as one who um, is responsible in helping to oversee and lead worship in a church as a pastor, uh, I'm so grateful for the, the people who serve in our worship ministry in our church, and your pastor feels the same about you. And I just want to voice that on behalf of all the pastors to say thank you for the time you practice your instruments and your voices behind the scenes, the time you uh, learn, uh, the time you invest in learning music, the time you invest in coming early and staying late and rehearsing, um, the, the way you humble yourself and follow a leader and take your soul to task when you may have other ideas about the way things should go, but for the glory of God, you humble yourself and follow someone else. Um, thank you for the ways you serve in private and in secret in preparing so that when we gather on the Lord's day to worship, uh, we are able to uh, engage God through our singing and our music. And that's um, because of your faithfulness to steward your gifts and use them. So thank you for what you do. Um, We appreciate you and are so grateful that you'd set aside this time to come and serve and uh, grow. That Being here expresses something of your desire to grow and to serve even more effectively in your local context and your church. So thanks for being here. And uh, if I get to come and say nothing else but that, it's a joy to uh, express my gratitude to, uh, to you, even though I don't know you. I know what you do, and uh, I am thankful. Tonight we're going to look at Psalm 33 and knowing God with the psalmist, as Bob uh, gave the title uh, that he assigned me, knowing God with the psalmist. And as we open this up, I want to tell you a story I have two sons, and uh, one of them is with me today, uh, this evening for the conference, but I have a younger son who is not here. And when he was three years old, his name is Kevin, when he was three years old, uh, he was playing one day in the front yard. And if you're a parent of toddlers, you know that uh, some of the cheapest and most enjoyable entertainment imaginable is just to watch the imaginary world of a toddler at work. And so I came up behind Kevin, and he was in the front yard, and he was in full superhero regalia. He had his jean shorts, uh, known as jorts, uh, had his jorts on. He had uh, a—he was shirtless— 
Uh, he had a cape, a superhero cape. He had a sword, and he was fully engaged in front yard battle. His sword was slashing, spittle was flying. There was an argument happening that I, I didn't know who he was speaking to. He was fighting the air, but he is yelling things. And as I come up from behind and hear him speak, I hear these words. I'm going to get you, evil masters. And I froze. I mean, this is my three-year-old who's had minimal exposure. I don't even know what an evil master is, but it does not sound good. I mean, we are not the family that is playing Dungeons and Dragons on family night. So I don't know who he's talking about, what malevolent beast and entity he is describing, but I am concerned. Where has he picked this up? What has he heard? So I just stop the warfare and call him over and get him in front of me and say, uh, Kevin, uh, looks like you're having a good time, buddy. Uh, I have a question for you. Who are the evil masters? And he looked up at me. And with determination, he said, they are the lawyers. <laughs> now, I instantly thought, where did he get his idea about lawyers? Not from me. I did not teach him that. It was his mom. No, it wasn't his mom. <laughs> Some of you are thinking, it sounds to me like the boy got a word from the Lord. That's what I think he got. I, I was dumbfounded. How did he get the idea that an evil master, whatever that was, was a lawyer that he should do battle with? And I realized that he just accumulated a number of terms of which he did not know the meaning. And he combined them and synthesized them into a concept and a perception and it so motivated him that somehow he thought this group of people, whoever they are, uh, needed him to go to war and do battle with them, complete and superhero getup. And I'm still asking the question this many years later, where, where in the world did he get his idea of a lawyer? And tonight I want to talk about this question, where do we get our idea about God? It's an important question. A.W. Tozer has famously said that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I think he's right. Because your concept, your perception, your understanding of God will shape and influence your response to God. Our perception of God will shape our response to God. And more specifically for this gathering, I think it would be fair to say that our perception of God will shape our response to God in corporate worship. That we will respond to God as we gather in corporate worship based on how we understand Him. And if we are to honor Him through our worship, then we will want to ensure that we and those we have the privilege of leading and serving on Sunday mornings, that we are thinking accurately, that we are thinking biblically about God. 
so that we will respond appropriately to God. Because it is possible for us to assimilate all kinds of subjective ideas about who God is and to respond and to worship based on uh, the experience of our circumstances, our feelings and emotions, some notion that we picked up somewhere, some preference of how we like to think about God. But the truth is that if we are to glorify God and worship Him in a way that honors Him, then we will want to think about Him as the Scripture defines Him for us. And I can think of no better place in Scripture, no place that's more instructive than the Psalms for revealing to us who God is, what He's done, what He's like, and to also instruct us how we are to respond to Him. Because the Psalms reveal God to us and model for us how to respond to God in a in the breadth of human experience, in the struggles of life, in the joys of life, the Psalms show us how to respond to God. As a matter of fact, I think one of the reasons that many of us are drawn to the Psalms is because the Psalms so clearly connect with daily life, do they not? I mean, no matter what you're going through tonight, there is a Psalm that gives voice expressing your experience tonight, whether it's a very difficult season or a very joyful season in our lives. But the primary power of the Psalms is not that they relate to us. The primary power of the Psalms is not that they connect with us on a daily basis regardless of our experience. The glory of the Psalms is not that the psalmist writes in a way that he understands us, but that the psalmist helps us to understand God. That's the power of the Psalms. The power of the Psalms is not in the first instance their relatability, but the fact that they are revelatory, that they reveal God to us, that they show God to us, that we may respond with an, with an attitude of glorifying Him and worshiping Him in a way that is worthy. And so tonight, and really throughout this week, we want to expand, deepen, clarify, and adjust our understanding of who God is as He's revealed Himself in the Scripture. And as we see Him, to better understand how we are to respond to Him with lives lives of worship. Because our perception of God will always shape our response to God. I want to read tonight Psalm 33 because we're going to look at this psalm in particular and we're going to look at response to God And we're also going to look at the person of God, His Word and His works, and how the two are tied together. Psalm 33. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to to Him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Sing to him a, I'm sorry, for the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. 
He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of His heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom He has chosen as His heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where He sits enthroned, He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him. Because we trust in his holy name, let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and tonight we posture ourselves as those who need to hear from your word. Lord, we don't come as those to evaluate your word in the first place, but those who are to be evaluated by your word. And so we humble ourselves and we say, speak to us, Lord, adjust our understanding where necessary, soften our hearts, illuminate our eyes to understand you in a more clear way. Enable us, Lord, to see you as you are revealed in this text of Scripture. And Lord, would you elevate our understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Lord, may the gospel be sweet to our ears as we hear it from this text tonight. God, I pray for everyone who is fatigued, everyone who is physically tired. I pray that in the moments ahead that you will give us an alertness to hear from you that would supersede our physical capacity So give us strength, give us listening ears, and Lord, enable us to be hearers and doers of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, throughout this weekend, uh, the end of this week, I'm sure we'll be hearing about different genres of psalms. The psalms can be classified and understood according to different genres, genres which uh, oftentimes uh, come from the mood of the psalm, the structure of the psalm, the intent of the psalm. They may be classified along the lines of different types of genre. And this psalm that we're reading is a hymn of praise. And it is really a textbook hymn of praise. For most of the hymns of praise in the book of Psalms follow a very similar outline. As we find here in Psalm 33, there is an invitation or a call to worship uh, 
a call to praise. Then there are reasons for praise listed, reasons that we should respond to the Lord. And then there's usually a closing exhortation to trust in God or perhaps even a request made of God at the end. So there is a call to worship. There then are reasons given for praising God. Something about who he is and what he's done is identified for us. And then a responsive statement at the end calling us to trust the great God that we have just had described for us. And that's exactly what happens in this psalm. It begins with a call to praise, verses 1 through 3. Look at verse 1. Shout for joy or sing for joy in the Lord. Verse 3, sing to him a new song, play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. This psalm is not some kind of a casual invitation to just sort of stroll in and be a detached spectator. This is a psalm where from the starting blocks, the psalmist is calling us into an exuberant worship. The very first line, he starts with shout. That is the first word in the ESV translation, shout for joy. So from the beginning, there's an exuberance. There's, it's, it's electric. It's a mood wherein there's an electric sense of response to God. There, there's a zealousness. And, and more than that, this psalm is loud. This is a loud song, verse 3, that, that even the skillful playing on the strings is to be accompanied with loud shouts. This is one where the folks working on the soundboard crank the volume. And no one is justified by looking backwards and giving that dirty look to the sound guy like, turn it down. Nobody gets to do that. This is the sound guy's psalm right here. And if you serve in sound ministry and like it loud, this is your life verse. I just just memorized this and quote it. Humbly, but appropriately, uh, on various occasions. (laughs) Don't use it to get your way, but if it's appropriate, use it appropriately. Shout for joy. How can we hear the loud shouts if we don't have the volume appropriately adjusted? So out of the starting blocks, the, the congregation is called to direct their attention, to direct their affections, and to respond to God with this singing, with this playing with this shouting aloud to God. It says, shout for joy in the Lord. It's a joyous occasion. O you righteous, those who've been declared right with God. We are the righteous ones by virtue of what Christ has done for us in his death and burial and resurrection. That when we gather to worship God as Christians, we are the ones who have been declared righteous before God. Those who are justified before him because of what Christ has done. So the, those declared righteous are, are to gather and to shout for joy because praise befits the upright. Befits. That's a word that means it's appropriate. This is the appropriate response. This is the, the, the right response. This is suitable. It fits the occasion. Now, it's not the only way. There's a, a variety of responses to God in the Psalms. All the Psalms are not loud. Some of them are silent. There's places to be silent. There's places to be still. There's places to weep. There's places to listen. There's places to whisper. But there's also places to shout. And this is one of those. And so in this expression, 
this is the appropriate praise is befitting of the upright. Give thanks, verse 2, to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to Him with the harp of ten strings. So there's musical accompaniment. There's musical accompaniment. This is the first time instruments are mentioned in the Psalms, if you just read them through, starting in Psalm 1. This is the first mention of, of instruments in all of the Psalms. And so there is this call to play stringed instruments. A lyre is a stringed instrument. Um, obviously, the harp of ten strings is a, str- a stringed instrument as well. So there's a call to play musically and then to sing to him a new song. And, and while singing this new song and while playing skillfully, there is to be loud shouts that accompany this worship. Loud shouts. Now, based on your background or based on your preference or based on your makeup or based on what you are uh, uh, comfortable with, th- these type of phrases may be a bit uh, unsettling. Uh, for your impression of corporate worship. These could be ideas that, that, that sort of shatter decorum in worship and our understanding of what, what appropriate worship might be. But I want to encourage you that this is descriptive of reverent worship. What's being talked about here is a reverence in worship for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's reverent because... What is happening here as we look through the description of God that will shortly follow is that an appropriate response to the person and work of God, an appropriate response for giving thanks, verse 2, is is in view here. That it is appropriate to give thanks to God, it is befitting to give thanks to God because of who He is with an ardent expressiveness with a fervent song and shout. There is a place where this is right. So it is reverent because uh, because the expression corresponds to the nature and the works of the one who is being celebrated. And it's also reverent because it is prescribed by God. Reverent worship is not a style so much. Reverent worship is not a volume level so much. Reverent worship is not... uh, song written four centuries ago versus song written more recently. That's not the nature. Reverent worship is not a building style or a seating arrangement or the dress of those playing or the instruments of those. That is not what reverent worship is about. Reverent worship is ultimately about responding to God in a way that He has prescribed He be worshipped. Because reverence has to do ultimately with obedience A sense of awe and adoration and humility that says, God, I obey and choose to worship you in a way that honors you that you have prescribed. Now again, the Bible has plenty to say besides shouting. But that's one expression. And it is perhaps the height of irreverence for me to approach God and say, God, I will worship you in a way that is pleasing to me. In a way that is comfortable to me, then there's a way that is acceptable in my sight. That would be the height of irreverence for me to come to God and then to dictate to Him the expression that I will give Him based on my background, my preference, my culture, whatever it is. I want to come to Him and we are to respond to Him based on who He is, based on what He's done, and based on how He prescribes that He is to be worshipped. And at least in this instance, He prescribes an expressiveness with volume as he is worshipped. 
The psalm calls for a new song as well. So all this is happening, and this singing, this playing, and there is a new song that is coming forth. Bob said earlier that we're singing new songs at this conference, and certainly a new song is like new lyrics with a new melody. That would be a new song. But there could be expression of new song that just doesn't have to do with, I never heard that one before. Because the reality is that every time we gather, even if the lyrics are familiar, I mean, after all, these, these lyrics have been sung for centuries. So if we're going to sing from the Psalter, these are not new songs. Once you've read them, it's no longer new. These are familiar, older songs. But we can still sing an old song as a new song because every time we gather to sing, we have new mercies to celebrate. See, each Lord's Day we gather, we have a new song because we have experienced the faithfulness of God in a way that we couldn't have sung about except by faith last Sunday. We have seven days where God has provided for us, where God has forgiven our sins. We've had seven days since the last Lord's Day where God has revealed to Himself, Himself to us through His Word again. And so we can come and sing with a new heart, or we can sing new songs with a heart that has experienced Him afresh. James Boyce said, every praise song should emerge from a fresh awareness of God's grace. So every Sunday we come, it's new song. It should be singing a new song in our heart. This is how Charles Spurgeon spoke of this passage and particularly spoke of singing a new song. He said, let us not present old, worn-out praise, but put life and soul and heart into every song since we have new mercies every day and see new beauties in the work and word of our Lord. See, every Sunday may it be new songs because we see new beauties in the person of God. We see new truths from His Scripture and we've experienced Him in a new and a fresh way because His mercy, any morning that we wake up with a heart beating, and lungs and lungs that are breathing in and out is a, is a statement of God's mercy. Every day we wake up with our sins forgiven under His grace and not under His wrath is new mercy. And so we gather and we sing new songs for His mercy is new to us. So it's, a, it's an exuberant call to worship. And then verse 4, he transitions to begin to give us reasons for worship. And this is what is so important. We have the response or a response And then we have a truth or truths about God to affect our perception of who He is and what He's done. And 4 transitions us in verse 4. 4, the word of the Lord is upright and all His work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. There's a sort of a turn here in this this statement, in this word 4, F-O-R in verse 4. Four, he's now giving us reasons. This isn't just gather everybody together and get emotional, sort of hoot and holler and just play loud music. That's not what this is about. The, The exuberant worship happens for God's word and God's works are glorious is what he describes. This is, this is important. He's not just talking about the worship leader being a, a sort of a, a, a cheerleader sort of gathering everybody into a frenzy, a pep rally for Jesus, where a lot of fluffy, trite things are sort of chanted, and everybody's excited, but nobody really knows what we're excited about. I've been in that meeting. Have you been in that meeting? We're all excited, but we're not really sure why, because there's not a focused content to it. 
But there is content here. For the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. And we're going to begin to get this glorious picture of God. And it's almost like this word for is kind of a, kind of a fulcrum. And that on one end, there is a raising up of our response to God as the person and work and character of God becomes clear to us. It's just the content of who He is and what He's done lifts our hearts up on the other side of the fulcrum, lifts our hearts up in worship and adoration and song and playing and even shouting, dancing, standing still, pausing, kneeling, bowing, lifting our hands. All of these responses... They're all responses based on who He is, not based on the music or how great the rhythm section is. Based on who God is. Bring praise because He is, His Word is upright. His work is done in faithfulness. His Word, the Word of the Lord, reveals who He is. God's Word is always revelatory, revealing who He is. So there's really a statement about praise God for who He is and for all His work, what He's done. He loves righteousness. He loves justice. That's who God is. He is pure. He is faultless. He is holy. He is right. And what He's done, the earth is full of His steadfast love. God's covenant love can be seen amongst His people throughout the planet. God's love is demonstrated. The many ways He cares for His people. And so God is faithful. His Word, who He is, what he does provokes our worship. That's why they're singing. That's why there's playing. That's why there is shouting. And now he's going to transition and be give us give us some specific truths about God to respond to. So his word and his works, and the first place we see his word and his work, and, and the ultimate place that they coincide is really in creation. And that's what he goes to in verse 6. So we have a call to worship, and now we have praise the creator. That's this first section. He wants to affect our perception of God, so we respond to him appropriately. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his nostril, all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. So he starts with the glory of creation, this expansive description of God who created everything. Everything that is created is created by him, and by the word of the Lord were the heavens made, verse 6. I don't think the main idea here, you know, we, we, could, we could go astronomy and talk about, you know, how many stars there are and how expansive the universe is and how little we know and that would be appropriate and that should inspire awe in us and uh, inspire adoration of God who is that powerful to create such a vast universe but I don't think that's the main idea here I think the how of creation is the main idea for worship that's highlighted here by the word of the Lord they were made that God created by his speech that God spoke forth and the heavens, the planets, the stars, everything was created merely by his word. That's what he emphasizes in verse 9. For he spoke. So this little section on creation, the first statement is by the word of the Lord everything was made. The concluding statement, verse 9, for he spoke and it came to be. God is amazing. That There is nothing but God. And God speaks and there is everything that is. That God doesn't create from existing matter, but God creates out of nothing. 
And when we consider our God, we consider the infinite difference in God and us. And one of the ways that's expressed is in the reality that only God can speak and out of nothing something appears. And that's the galaxies, the heavens, and all their starry host. We have no ability like that. If I were to scoop up a scoop of nothing, and I know there's some science person over here who will say, well, actually, there's atoms, and okay, I know there's... But for the sake of illustration, there's nothing, okay? Not looking forward to that, that conversation in the lobby afterwards, so but okay. So there's nothing in my hand. And if I just sort of take the scoop of nothing and hand it to you, and you grab the, you grab the nothing, sir... Be careful, that's nothing. You got it. Okay, but don't drop that nothing. And and then I say, okay, create something out of what's in your hands. We cannot do that. Only God can speak and create something out of nothing. And that's the way He created the universe. That's the power of our God. So when we're singing, when we're playing, when we're shouting, we're not just getting all excited. Oh, I love this song. Now, that's not what we're doing. We're responding to the God who is beyond our comprehension, who is altogether different, who is powerful in a way that we cannot even measure and ultimately can't even relate to. We can get a glimpse of that. You can understand what I just said, what the Scripture tells us, but we don't know that experientially because we've never done that. Only God does that. God is glorious in His power. And when we gather for worship, it's this type of rich biblical and theological truth that we want to remind ourselves of, that we want to think about, that we want to be encouraged by. Even when we gather in the difficulties of life, there is comfort, there is hope in knowing that God is powerful. God who spoke and everything came into existence. That is huge. And while the the problem that I'm facing right now seems difficult, while the the unknown seems, uh, seems overwhelming in my life, While things that I'm facing, I have challenges and you have challenges that as we look ahead, they seem insurmountable. But we're not talking about a human level of solving problems. We're talking about dealing with the God of the universe and worshiping the God of the universe who created everything out of nothing. That is power. God is powerful. And so we're singing to the God who's omnipotent and glorious in who He is and what He's done. See, understanding that truth that shapes our response to Him. It says in here that, that He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap, that God has the ability to just sort of heap up the waters, that 140 million square miles of ocean, God can just sort of pile them up, put them in a storehouse, just like a farmer would store his grain. God is powerful. And so we stand in awe. There's another expression that may be a much quieter expression, verse 8. Stand in awe of Him. Where he created. He then transitions that God's not only the creator of all, but God's the ruler of all. Look at verse 10. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever and the plans of his heart to all generations. He begins by looking at God with the widest possible lens. He created everything. And now he's narrowing it and he's saying, God Not only created everything, but He sovereignly rules over human history. That God rules over the nations. 
That's his providence that God not only creates, but he rules over all of human history. He not only creates, he sustains as well. And God controls. The nations do not have their say. There is no uh, individual, there is no nation that rules this planet. God rules this planet. And He raises up a leader and He puts down a leader as He chooses. He raises up a nation and He puts down a nation as He chooses. That God rules over all. That He brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He stops them. He frustrates the plans of the people. They're trying to get their way as they oppose God, but He just stops them frustrates, confuses their plans. But his plans, on the other hand, verse 11, his counsel stands forever throughout all generations. No national strategy or plan succeeds apart from God's will. God gets his way. God ultimately will have his way. And that's comforting in times of difficulty. This psalm may have been written in a time of difficulty. In verse 20, it says, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. And then there are these statements we're going to look at momentarily about a king and his army. So there's, there's certain battle imagery. He's our shield. Uh, don't trust in a king. We're going to talk about that in a moment. The nations. So, so there seems to be this sense in which perhaps this was written in a context of difficulty, and it's a reminder to trust God because he rules over the nations. And it's a reminder to us Again, like the creation, arguing from greater to lesser. If he created everything out of nothing, then surely he's powerful enough to handle what I'm facing. And in a similar way, if he rules over the nations, that no nation can act apart from God, then surely God can protect me from my enemies, my challenges. Surely God can help me in the details of my life. Surely God, who rules over big things like nations, can care for me in my life and be my help and my shield as well. He is sovereign. He is in control. And that truth causes us to respond with trust. No matter what our circumstances are, to respond with singing. There's a new song on our heart regardless of circumstance because our God is in control. So we have reason to sing. We have reason to play. We have reason to shout. We have reason to give thanks because He created it all and He rules over it all. These are very practical theological statements about God that we, are, that we meditate and think about and affect our response to Him as we think about those truths. And then the last section is praise the Savior, praise the Creator, praise the Ruler, and praise the Savior. He, here He elevates God's work to the work of redemption. Now the word Savior is not used in these verses, but saving terminology is all over the place. It starts off in verse 12, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord the people whom He has chosen for His heritage. Under the Old Covenant, God related with the nation of Israel. But under the New Covenant, Jew and Gentile alike are joined together. And we are God's people. Those who have trusted Christ as their Savior. Those who are in in Jesus Christ are part of the people of God. 1 Peter 2, Peter writes, Once we were not a people, but now we are the people of God. And so the psalmist is drawing our attention to the wonderful truth that those of us who know God are part of His people, and we are blessed 
to be a part of the people of God. And if that's not sufficient reason to sing and to shout and to play, he goes on to say that we are part of the people of God by His choosing. Look at the second part of verse 12. The people whom He has chosen as His inheritance. God has chosen us. That's reason to sing and to celebrate that God has chosen and included us. A defining description of the believer is chosen by God. And here's how that relates to our corporate worship. I mean, in the starkest terms, the reason you are here tonight worshiping God rather than cursing God, the reason you are here tonight as a friend of God rather than an enemy of God. The reason you are here tonight, forgiven by God and not condemned by God. Under God's grace, not His wrath. The reason tonight that you are here free and not enslaved, spiritually alive and not spiritually dead, is because God has chosen you to be a part of His people and He has saved you through the work of Jesus Christ. That is the reason. And that perception of God and His grace will profoundly shape our response to God in worship. He is the Creator. Indeed, that's glorious. He is the Sovereign Ruler. That is wonderful. But He is also the God who out of all of the people on the planet has chosen for Himself a people for Himself. And we are in that people of God through Jesus Christ. Listen, I I don't always live with that when I gather with God's people on Sundays. But when I do, it makes a huge difference. See, I don't know about you, but here's what happens with me oftentimes. Oftentimes, when I'm getting ready for our Sunday worship service, Sunday morning, getting ready and and going uh, to to the meeting, I am often distracted by all the stuff to do. So I've got to do this. I've got to get here by here. I've got to have this. I've got to talk to this person before the service. I've got to catch it. Oh, I've got to tell them that. Remember? And there's stuff just in my mind, all, all that I have to do in worship. And what can happen is I can very easily get drawn into that and I can get distracted away from the awareness of the indescribable privilege it is to gather with the people of God and to be a part of the people of God with my sins forgiven. There are other Sundays when, by God's grace, I'm much more aware. When it's not all the stuff I have to do, but I'm thinking about the profound honor, privilege, and joy it is just to know God. And when I drive to gather with God's people on Sunday morning, I drive to the building to worship. There are times I drive by and I I see a guy mowing his lawn. It doesn't mean he's not a Christian because he's mowing his lawn on Sunday morning, but he could very well be. And I drive by a guy mowing his lawn. And I drive by a family playing in the park for Sunday mornings. And I drive by someone who's spending their Sunday morning shopping. And it it hits me. God, why am I not the guy mowing my lawn this morning? Why am I not the guy with no interest in you who thinks this would be a wonderful time just to hang out in the park? Why am I not the guy who says, Sunday morning, I'm free? I can go shopping. Why am I wanting to be among your people, with your people, singing your praises? I am rich, God. You have chosen me, and I am driving. I'm not doing, I'm not doing lawn work this morning. 
I'm driving to sing your praises. I'm going to hear your word. I'm going to serve others in the body of Christ and have that privilege. I'm going to meet friends and see them who care about me and take an interest in my life and my family's life. I'm going to pray with people, to be prayed for and to pray for others. I'm going to involve myself in the most important activity on the planet, which is the people of God coming and glorifying the Savior. And why am I a part of that? It's because of your grace. There's no other explanation. I'm not smarter than the guy mowing the lawn. I'm not more moral than the guy mowing the lawn. I'm just blessed by grace. And that's reason to sing. Listen, I'm going to challenge you this Sunday morning because most of you are involved in some type of service that relates to, to music ministry likely on Sunday morning. You know, this Sunday morning, I just want to encourage you at some point as you're driving, as you're in the building, and maybe even as you're getting ready, just to put the music down for a second. Just to put your instrument down for a second. Just to set aside the to-do list of the 15 things that need to happen before the service starts at 10 o'clock and set all that stuff aside. And just think for a moment what it means to be blessed, to be a part of the people of God, to have your eyes opened to the Savior, to have your sins forgiven, and to be joined with His people in worship. Just pause. Just, just stop everything for a moment and consider the reality expressed in this verse. The people, blessed are the people whom He's chosen for His inheritance. goes on beyond that and talks about the blessings of knowing God. Verse 13, the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions hearts of them and uh, the hearts of them and observes all their deeds. So God is the one who is omnisciently looking out and observing everyone. Now that's a scary thought perhaps that God knows everything. But the intent of that description is that God is ultimately looking down upon His people to protect them and care for them. Because look at verse 18. God looks down and sees everything. And then verse 18, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope in His steadfast love, that He may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. See, God is looking and seeing everything. And His eye is on His people. God's eye is on you tonight. God's eye is on you, and His eye is on those who fear the Lord, those who hope in the Lord, that He may deliver their soul from death, that He may keep them alive in famine. God is looking down upon us that He may protect, that He may provide, that He may care, that He may deliver. What a rich truth that is when we gather to worship the Lord. That God is watching over us. And the temptation for all of us is when we get into trouble is to look somewhere else for help rather than the God who is looking down upon us. And I think that's the reason that these verses precede what we just read. He, he, he highlights false hopes. He highlights false hopes and he reveals the true hope. Verse 16, the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. 
He's saying, look, God looks down over everything. God is looking. He has his eye on you to deliver your soul from death and to provide for you in famine. God is watching over to care for you, to help you, to protect you. So don't look elsewhere. He takes the greatest human authority, the king, and he says the king is not saved by his great army, the greatest power. The greatest human authority is the king. The greatest human power is the king's army. And he says the king, his authority, his power, his army, they will not deliver. He cannot cannot save himself. Only God saves. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. He's dismantling uh, self-sufficiency here. That the warrior is not going to be saved from battle, battle because of his strength. The warrior will be saved because of God. God will save his people. Remember, the, the king will not rule. God rules over the nations. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. It's tempting to trust the war horse because if the troops are on their feet and you're on a horse, you've got a distinct advantage, the war horse in battle. But it's a false hope of rescue. You're not saved because of a war horse. You're not saved because of your technology, your advance over someone else, perhaps. Look at all the saving language he uses here. The king is not saved. The warrior's not delivered. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. It cannot rescue. All of this salvation language. We're saying God is watching over his people. There's no other way to be delivered from trouble. There's no other way to be saved from trouble. God will protect you and care for you. And if that's true in physical circumstances like battle, how much more is that true in our souls? That we are not saved from our sins. We are not delivered from our sins. We are not rescued from the wrath of God by our own works. No one is delivered because of their morality. No one is saved because of their church attendance and religious devotion. It is a false hope for salvation that any of us, by avoiding severe categories of sins and embracing good works could ever save ourselves. There is only one who can rescue, only one who delivers, only one who saves from sin, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only true hope. He is the rescuer, the God-man Jesus Christ. God is the one who has saved us. God is the one who is sanctifying us. God is the one who will hold us until the very end and bring us into glory. God is our rescuer. He is our hope. Not our wisdom, our strength, our strategy. We trust so many places. Our experience, our money, our friends, our education, our technology, our spouse, our parents. God is our rescue. And he's using this, to, this, this language of king and army and warrior and war horse to make that point to us. God's power is our hope. See, we are blessed to be his people. He alone has saved us to make us his people. He protects us and watches over us. His eye is upon us. He is our savior. So is there any wonder that verse 20, the psalmist can say, our soul waits for the Lord. Listen, that's how we get to the place of our soul waits for the Lord. Is not by just having a great song to sing with skilled lyre players playing really loudly. We didn't go from play loud and shout to God is our help. We had 12 verses in between. That, that 12 verses in between our soul waits for the Lord and all the singing. They were statements about the Creator, 
the sovereign ruler, the Savior. Our soul waits because of the Creator, the Sovereign, the Savior. He is our help. He is our shield. Our heart is glad in Him. We trust in His holy name. Let Your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in You. Moves from great celebration and singing to patient waiting and hoping. And the movement of the psalm runs right through the person and the work and the character of God, the work of Jesus Christ the Savior. That's what's preeminent. That's what drives the response. That's what produces affection and joy and appropriate worship. It's that perception of God as Creator, Ruler, and Savior that shapes our response to God so that we sing, we play, we shout, we also stand in awe, we also hope, and we wait knowing that He's our help, He's our shield. Our heart is glad, there's joy as we trust in Him, and we request, God, may Your love be upon us as we hope in You. That's the rhythm of the Christian life. We sing and we shout. We see a glimpse of who God is. And we respond by singing and shouting. Then we get another glimpse of who God is. And we wait. And while we're waiting, we sing and we shout some more. And then we wait some more. And we wait and we hope and we sing and we shout. And all these expressions of life are not a response to our emotion, not a response to our circumstances, but a response to the glorious God of the universe who reveals himself in Scripture and certainly reveals himself in the book of Psalms and ultimately reveals himself in the person of Jesus Christ. The God-man, the sin-bearer who absorbs the wrath of God in our place that we may be free, forgiven, and welcomed to a throne of grace to know God and to express worship to God with joy passion, and exuberance. May our experience of God be driven by truth and may our response to God throughout this week, throughout this weekend, may our response to God be formed, informed, and directed by the truth of who He is and what He's done. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for who You are and what You've done. We thank You for voices to sing. We thank you for hands to clap. We thank you for feet to move and knees to kneel. Lord, we thank you for heads to bow. We thank you for minds to think and affections to feel. But most of all, we thank you for you and the gospel so that we may use all of those things as response to you. Thank you for choosing us and blessing us and making us a part of your people through the work of Jesus Christ. Thank you for gathering us to this place where we can celebrate in extended ways who you are and what you've done. And we pray that you would teach us this weekend and help us to grow in our knowledge of you, that we may worship you in a way that brings you greater glory as we worship in response to you. Glorify yourself, our God. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message by Craig Cabanis, which was given at our Worship God 2008 conference and has been made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. Sovereign Grace is primarily devoted to planting and caring for churches. 
We also hold conferences, train leaders, and publish books, music, and audio and video messages. For more information, visit www.sovereigngraceministries.org or call us at 301-330-7400.